Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hello and welcome to Borderlines, a podcast for Canadian immigration law. I'm Stephen Murens. On this episode, Deanna and I are joined by Laura Best, a Canadian immigration lawyer practicing in Toronto. Our discussion in this episode is about refugee resettlement and housing. In July 2023, several stories about refugees living on Toronto streets dominated the news. These stories appear to have faded, at least in the media, but the issue remains. On July 29, 2023, for example, Olivia Chow, the mayor of Toronto, even asked Toronto residents to open up their homes and offer available rental units to asylum seekers. At the time, more than 200 refugee claimants remained in temporary shelters at two North York churches. Toronto's 9,000-bed shelter system was apparently full most nights, with 300 people being turned away nightly. Not all of those shelter spots, obviously, are taken by refugee claimants. Now, these stories were but one example of an issue which is increasingly dominating Canadian politics, which is the intersection of immigration and housing. Indeed, there even appears to have been in the media a shift in the coverage of immigration to one which is increasingly focused on whether Canada can sustain current immigration levels given the housing shortage in the country. This is a topic that we discuss on this episode, and I imagine we'll be doing future episodes on it as well, as I don't see this issue going away for reasons that we discuss in the episode. As always, if you like the episode or the podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, and I hope you enjoy today's podcast. A few weeks ago now, it made big news that the Toronto shelter system basically was full, according to the city of Toronto. And what was happening is that individuals who were refugee claimants, uh, and it seemed to be heavily African claimants, so Ugandans, uh, Rwandans, there was no space in the Toronto shelter system for them to sleep. So what was happening is that they were sleeping on the street. 
outside uh, 129 Peter, which is the, the address of the organization that would usually help place them. They were sleeping in parks, uh, that there was a group of them that truly had no housing options in the city of Toronto. Uh, so what sort of came out of that was a debate between the city of Toronto and the federal government as to who was most responsible for funding. So the city of Toronto requested more funding from the city, from the federal government uh, to house them. There's an ongoing lack of shelters in the city of Toronto for all individuals, not even counting newcomers. Um, and it did resolve somewhat in that the federal government provided more money to the city of Toronto to help newcomers. A number of just sort of grassroots organizations, churches agreed to house some of these refugee claimants temporarily. But the lack of shelter space in Toronto and how that impacts immigrants has been a real problem over the past months. So in 2022, I did a lot of detention work uh, through a contract with Legal Aid Ontario. And for people to be released from detention, it is usually a condition that they provide an address prior to release. And what was happening in the winter is that every shelter was full, every refugee housing was full. So people had release orders from the immigration division to be released from immigration detention and couldn't find an address to be released to. So we saw people staying in jail for far longer uh, than was anticipated because there was just no shelter space in Toronto for them to go to. Where are they uh, from? Like, are these mainly people who crossed at Roxham Road or is it a wide swath of the asylum claimant? Actually, that's another thing that like the media is kind of use the two terms interchangeably between refugee and asylum claimants. Are they mainly asylum claimants or refugees? Yeah, so the people that my understanding of the people who are sleeping, you know, were sleeping in parks and were on the yeah. street, those are mostly refugee claimants or people who intended to make a refugee claim. Uh, so they, most of them probably would have crossed at Roxham Road or uh, entered Canada, not otherwise not at a port of entry. Uh, they were not accepted refugee claimants. So they aren't people who had gone through the refugee determination system and gotten a decision. They were all relatively new to Canada. But the other solution that IRCC was taking um, and continues to make, take, to my knowledge, is asking people if they would like to go elsewhere and then um, assisting them in going to see uh, family or be housed in provinces as far flung as Newfoundland or British Columbia, and then coordinating with organizations on the ground in those provinces to house newcomers to ease some of the pressure on Toronto and Montreal's shelter and hotel system. In addition, some of the pressure on the shelter specifically in Ontario is that a housing benefit that would have allowed people to move out of the shelters ran out of money, basically. So the normal movement of people out of Toronto shelters into low income housing wasn't happening 
And then so people were staying in shelters longer because of the lack of money in that benefit. And then newcomers couldn't move into that shelter, those that, shelters. So, is that a federal benefit or provincial? I believe it's provincial, but I'd have to look, I'd have to confirm. Yeah. I mean, when there's, you, you know, you talked about the funding dispute between the feds and the province. Usually when there's a funding dispute between two levels of government, I tend to come down that the level of government that can print the money should probably be the one to pay. Um, mm. But the, so these are mainly like asylum claimants. Uh, you mentioned that with uh, at least the ones that the media has covered sleeping outside the shelter primarily um, from Africa. Has it been covered if they are people who crossed at Roxham Road? I don't think there's a lot of information on exactly who these people are and why certain demographics are congregating in different parts mm -hmm. of the city. I think that the most prominent individuals who were in the media around this homelessness issue a few weeks ago were recently arrived uh, asylum claimants from Africa. There was a number of LGBTQ individuals from Uganda, yeah. given the new laws that were promulgated yeah, yeah. there. I'm so, seeing a lot of those even here um, lately. Yeah, so they are exceptionally vulnerable exactly. on a number of different fronts, uh, yeah. newcomers. And so it was pretty devastating, the folks photos, the videos of the circumstances in which they were living in the park. Um, and it's not super safe for anyone to be homeless in Toronto, given, um, you know, the level of violence uh, be yeah. between people, you know, the level of police violence. So it, I think, was an, a massive shock for people who were coming to Canada to claim refugee status, especially with claims that were so meritorious, like for sure. they might and from Uganda, that there was no place to go. It yeah. wasn't that there was warming centers or, you know, beds set up in a church, church basement. They were, there was no help to be had. Yeah. I don't know if you're seeing that there too. Like a lot of those claims, even it's just about getting them in. Many of them are going to be decided even without hearings, you know, they're like highly meritorious, but it's just getting people in a stable enough place that they can tell their story, get them written down, get them filed, um, and then get them sort of put through so that they can, they can be hurt, they can be, um, you know, decided, but uh, but winter's not far away and, uh, you know, and a Toronto winter for uh, someone who's just arrived from Africa, uh, that's no joke. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I find that as someone who did most of my practice of law in Vancouver, I find the homelessness shelter issue in Toronto, given how harsh the winters are, extremely shocking mm -hmm. that... There are people. There are people who are homeless throughout a Toronto winter, and every year there are people who pass away from exposure to the cold mm -hmm. because of homelessness in Toronto. So the debate between the federal government and the city as to who should be paying for this and how much 
and how much should Toronto bear the burden versus sending people to other cities? Um, it, I'm glad that it got worked out in some small way in the past few weeks, but I agree, Deanna, the fact that winter is not far off in Toronto really is really a terrifying prospect. Yeah. How does it get like so the government, the federal government said they'd chip in a bunch of money. The mm -hmm. story disappeared from the news. Mm -hmm. Where does that money go to cause such a quick solution? Or are there still asylum claimants uh, living homeless? The money hasn't had an effect yet and it's just not in the news. Well, I think some of what happened after it hit the news is that a lot of these churches and non-governmental organizations also stepped up to fill mm. the immediate void to get people off the streets. But yeah, I mean, like I was saying before Deanna joined last winter, the, the shelter system in Toronto was full, like absolutely full. There was no beds to be had. So when people even got release orders to get released from immigration detention, a lot of times they couldn't physically be released because they didn't have mm -hmm. a place to go. And then when you ask, you know, refugee claimants, like, do you want me to try to amend the conditions of release so you don't have to provide an address? Like, like a young kid from Iran, like, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. you want me to get released into the streets of Toronto in minus 20 degree weather and line up at the shelter intake and hope that I get a bed. And what happens if I don't? Yeah. So then, yeah, we had people who were at the holding center because they couldn't. There was an else. There was another warm place for them to yeah. stay. Yeah, I mean, and the the the, the conversation too needs to uh, pick up on some of um, dealing with people who are highly traumatized and. Um, and then you bring in this issue of housing as well, too, because, you know, um, I think anyone who works in the sector has dealt with people who have come to Canada um, and, you know, they arrive and then they are immediately unhoused. <laughs> and when you're coming and you're dealing with like deep, deep trauma and you're working through the, the um, I think that, you, you know, for me, what I what I've experienced is that going through the refugee claims process is for many people the most difficult experience because they actually have to talk through some of the experience that they've survived. And then at this point, also being unhoused, you know, um, they're extremely, extremely vulnerable, especially when they're on the streets and living in um, areas where there's a lot of violence and all of that sort of thing as well. So, um, you know, that this, you know, when we talk about legal aid, it doesn't ever cover anything that deals with housing. Well, that's directly related to them being able to get access to justice because um, being able to sort of talk about these stories uh, without ever having any security uh, is really it's putting them at their most vulnerable, really being able to having to talk about what they've experienced. Um, it's really impossible to have a fair and safe hearing when you're um, when you're in danger and, you know, um, in the elements and, you know, in a Toronto winter. Um, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that really it's not able to be encompassed in the whole legal aid um, system. 
Would legal aid cover the cost of a one bedroom? I don't know what a one bedroom is in Toronto. I saw in Vancouver, it's up to like twenty nine sixty a month or something for a one bedroom um, is the average rent. I really don't know where this is all heading. You know, we were chatting before the podcast uh, recording started about whether there has been a shift in the media and the public over whether the right number of immigrants is coming to Canada, given the housing crisis. On the like asylum claimants specifically, um, you know, one of the things the government did earlier this year was they amended the Safe Third Country Agreement, which was an agreement which provided that someone could not claim refugee status coming from the United States at a legitimate or an authorized or a, a, like a real port of entry on the Canada-US border. There were exceptions, um, with the big one being that if you crossed at a non-designated port of entry or a non-official port of entry, the Safe Third Country Agreement didn't apply, which led to increasing numbers of refugee claimants. And then in the, I can't remember if it was in the winter or the spring, they announced that they were closing that quote-unquote loophole. But in, and in exchange, they were going to bring 15,000 refugees from Central America. I haven't actually heard anything about whether there's been any progress about that, whether we're going to, Canada will actually fulfill that commitment. Um, it's also not clear to me, like, you know, given the situation now, on at least on the streets of Toronto, and I think a lot of those people wound up in Toronto because the Quebec government threw up its hands and said it could no longer support asylum claimants and may have even bus some to Ontario, uh, where there will be housing for these 15,000 refugees from Central America or what the plan is, uh, I don't think has been explained. Well, I do think that the whole refugee flows in Canada conversation is really, really interesting. That I think most people have a view of Canada as being exceptionally generous to refugees, that we welcome a huge number of refugees. And what they don't realize is that Canada is highly protected by geography from refugee claims. So they either have to make it to Canada with a valid visa or via human smuggling and then make a claim at an airport or from within Canada um, or be one of the very lucky few who are come as sponsored refugees. And now that the safe third country has extended over the entire U.S. border and so so you cannot enter Canada basically from the U.S. at all unless you meet one of the narrow exceptions and make a refugee claim in Canada. And it also includes people who have entered within the past 14 days. Right. So it's not enough to make it over the border and make a refugee claim in Canada. You have to hide surreptitiously for 14 days in order to get that exception. So. Compared to countries which are situated next to refugee producing countries, like when you look at the numbers of refugees in places like Pakistan or uh, Turkey, um, that's not even including European countries like Greece or Germany, like they're in the hundreds of thousands, millions of refugees. And Canada gets, you know, 10, 20,000 a year. And 
throws up their hands and says, it's too many and we can't deal mm-hmm. with it. We need to tighten the borders. So I think a lot of Canadians have this view that there's mm-hmm. so many refugees. And when you compare it even to Europe, it's not even remotely comparable on the numbers. I think even the notion of sponsored refugees, I think people have a very, um, a very uh, incorrect notion of what it means to be a sponsored refugee, that anybody can sponsor any refugee anywhere. And I think that, uh, uh, anyways, I think that that's always very uh, off base. And I think that, so I think um, I know that this is a bit outside of what we've thought about discussing, but I, you know, I, I do think that um, that maybe providing some clarity about that would be would be useful. Mm-hmm. So t- to come to Canada as a sponsored refugee, you can come either sponsored by the government of Canada, uh, and that's not something you can apply for. That's a partnership they have with the UNHCR to pick the most vulnerable individuals from overseas. Or you can come sponsored by a group of five, any five Canadians. But if you come sponsored by a group of five, you need to already have a refugee determination for either from the UNHCR or from a third country that you qualify as a refugee. Um, and, and then the third category that can sponsor you is a sponsorship agreement holder. So like the United Church or the Afghan Women's Association in Toronto, they get a very limited number of spots a year that they can sponsor refugees through. Um, but what I find very, very interesting about the sponsored refugee uh, program is that requirement for a refugee status determination for groups of five. So they lifted, that was a Jason Kenney. Um, it, before Jason Kenney, you could sponsor anyone who met the refugee definition as a group of five. Uh, And then they lifted it briefly in the Syrian crisis that uh, certain nationalities didn't need to have a refugee status uh, determination, but that is back in place. So when we're talking about, you know, 15,000 Central Americans or the crisis in Afghanistan or what's happening in Iran or even, you know, Ukrainians who wish to transition to permanent residency, not just through the temporary visa. It seems opening up the ability for Canadians to sponsor individuals. And then Canadians are on the hook for the first year of housing, the first year of food, the first year of living expenses. If we're wanting to meet our refugee commitments while also um, lightening the burden on the public purse, if that's a concern of ours, it seems that reopening the group of five to not include a refugee status determination seems like a, an exceptionally obvious tool <laughs> that mm-hmm. I was shocked when they were the crisis happened in Afghanistan and they didn't lift that requirement. It seems mm-hmm. so obvious to me that what's happening with the gangs in Central America, what's happening with the reemergence of the FARC in Colombia, like there are thousands and thousands of Canadians and permanent residents who have family in vulnerable situations who are willing to sponsor them financially or to fundraise money For sure. and they can't. Yeah. So I find, I find that a really easy solution that the federal government could bring in to meet refugee, like our, meet our humanitarian commitments without having it necessarily have as big an impact on social services. So 
For sure. And even in places where um, they have said in the past, they recognize that certain people are like de facto refugees based on being a woman trying to live in Afghanistan, for example. But the numbers with the sponsorship agreement holders are so low. And many of the organizations that I've spoken to have said they have three year long waiting lists mm -hmm. based on mm -hmm. just people that have approached them. But also just the practicalities of getting that refugee determination made abroad. I think that, you know, um, those waiting lists with the UNHCR posts abroad, like they're just, you know, people will be waiting in camps for years and years to get those determinations made. So practically speaking, the barriers that you spoke to of accessing Canada are gigantic. And so... Mm -hmm. um, so are we serious about offering those protections or are we not? Uh, it's, a, it's a real question. I was just and checking, is the 15,000, I want to make sure I get this number right, from Central America. That's a great point, uh, Laura. It, never, it hadn't crossed my mind that Canada could try to resettle the 15,000 migrants from the Western Hemisphere through private sponsorship. If they're going to do that, they should probably announce it soon. Because, <laughs> I mean, you know, over the next year is, uh, I think, halfway over. And I actually don't know what happens if Canada doesn't meet this target. But the... I always wonder when yeah. these announcements are made, though. Like, are they talking about from now? Or are they talking about including those who are already sitting in their backlogs, that they're going to process those and consider those numbers toward that goal. Those are people that have already made claims that they're just going to process them and then consider those, you know, numbers toward that, that goal post. Um, you know, I always find those statistics are difficult to deal with. That was the same when they, they made these announcements with respect to Syria, with respect to Afghanistan. Are those new numbers or are those numbers of people who are already, have already made claims and they're just going to process them? And so I always find it's hard to get any clarity about, about what that means. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you feel the same way, Laura. Yeah, I mean, they announce these numbers and then they don't announce any details on the programs or plans or inclusion, exclusion for the numbers. So it and it sounds in sometimes the numbers sound large, like, oh, 15,000 seems like a lot of people. But when you um, put that in perspective, like I said, with other countries who are next to refugee producing um, countries, it's actually really, really small. The other thing that I find weird, and I was listening to another podcast over the weekend where someone made this point, is that as far as planning for new arrivals, the law is set up so that the targets for a given year are announced in November the year before. So they'll announce what the 2024 or numbers are going to be for immigration in November of 2023, which, you know, even if we pretended that the provinces and the federal government all work together on this, there's really like for the provinces to theoretically build housing for newcomers, they don't really get a lot of like notice in the way the system currently is set up as to how many people will be coming. Yeah. And I want to go back that we haven't really discussed is the number of temporary residents. 
right? Mm-hmm. Like international students that are coming, the ex- absolute explosion in number of international students over the past 10, 20 years in Canada, all of whom need to live somewhere as well, right? So mm-hmm. we have the immigration levels plan, how many people are going to permanently reside here, but then we also have huge numbers of temporary residents who need to be housed mm-hmm. as well. So I I mean, for the first time, I think in the past few months, I have seen news articles or media reports about international students and the impact on housing or new, you know, it seems that people are starting to there is a pushback, I think, Steve, on people coming to Canada because of the housing crisis, that the people in the big cities, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, are feeling the cost of housing crunch so badly. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. people have more that limited Steve patience. Said, though, is that, uh, you know, he was saying, uh, Steve asked whether or not that was going to be overseas sponsorship. But I think that it it kind of has to be because in Canada claims that has to be demand driven, right? Those claims are adjudicated on their merits. If somebody comes to Canada and makes their claim, that can't be a capped program. If that claim turns out to be meritorious, then that claim needs to be allowed. So if they're allotting a certain group, it has to be based on we are going to grant this certain number of um, of, of places for overseas sponsorships, right? Um, and so um, that's how many certificates are going to be allotted, let's say, you know, that are, or people with these uh, UNHCR certificates are going to be allowed to be sponsored to Canada. Um, but again, um, it, it's just, it doesn't speak to the, what are we going to do with the people once they've arrived and how are we going to accommodate those people when you look at that in the context of the other international students, permanent residents that we're also um, undertaking to welcome. They could do uh, Mm -hmm. what they just did with the H-1B program, where they announced that if you're waiting for your H-1B in the lottery for the United States, you could apply for an open work permit essentially as a backup from what I understand like you don't actually have to come and activate the work permit but you now have this three-year work permit approval letter while you wait in the lottery they could just uh do the same thing if you have an h unhcr certificate we're opening it up three years Uh, I guess it wouldn't be a three-year work permit but you can come to Canada as a resettled refugee um like in theory if they want to make it demand driven I don't know how many people in western hemisphere of unhcr certificates but the demand will be there if they open it. So I guess it depends what, you know, as you were saying, Deanna, what their actual, what they are looking at as who they are going to resettle. But even there, that's yeah, an because, example I mean, as far as overseas. like, like an explore, like we were talking about the increase in temporary residents. I saw like the reaction from, to the H1B announcement, that lottery for 15,000 people in some quarters, it was good. I saw a lot of media you know, questioning like in a tech recession, there's going to be in theory 15,000 people in tech arriving. Again, I'm, I'm not sure how many will actually come here immediately while they wait for their uh, H-1B lottery. But, um, you know, there's the same questions about where are people going to live? 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah, and I mean, as far as processing these migrants overseas, I mean, there's a benefit to Canada to processing them overseas. They can do their admissibility screenings. Uh, they can screen for vulnerabilities and medical needs and plan far, far better when they're they show up in Canada if they know more about their background. And of course, they can make sure that they're eligible, they meet the refugee definition, there's no other inadmissibilities. So Mm -hmm. to me, it seems as Canada has really moved towards limiting the people who can come and make a refugee claim in Canada, it seems like the obvious humanitarian response would be to reopen and expand more of the overseas refugee sponsorship group. Because Mm -hmm. With the Safe Third Country agreement applying across the entire border, I think we are going to see a large drop in the number of refugee claims a year. And we see no other than this one-time commitment from the Canadian government. There isn't any sort of long-term other planning for how Canada will rebalance its humanitarian commitments in light of shutting the border down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the other benefit of doing them processed overseas is that they can seek sponsorship, and that would ideally um, assist with the costs of resettlement. Um, if, you know, if that is, is going to be an issue that can't be dealt with at the political level in terms of funds for, for dealing with things like housing. But I do think that that we, we need to... Um, you know, I think this issue of requiring uh, the UNHCR certificate, I think that that really is a fundamental obstacle. And I think mm-hmm. in, in, in my view, I think we need to, to, to rethink whether or not there is not a better way of doing a, a, an adjudication of the claim abroad so that we don't need to rely on those overseas partners when Really, right now, there are so many conflicts going on abroad that the ability of those agencies to be there to do that initial determination is hampered. And so if we're, you know, we do have the ability to adjudicate claims. We have a very good um, board that's able to make these decisions. And if we're going to be moving to an overseas sponsorship system, then surely we should be able to use that system for deliberating those claims and transport it to um, making those determinations abroad. You know, like um, if we want to change that focus, then, you know, why can't those claims be determined through that same adjudication system, whether the claimant is abroad or, or, or in Canada? 
Do you consider the the CUAET, the Canada Ukraine Authorization for Emergency Travel, to be a refugee program? No. I don't personally. Again, I'd love to hear what Laura thinks. I mean, I don't think that was the intention of the Canadian government, at least explicitly stated. And I don't have the numbers on the numbers of Ukrainians who made a refugee claim, but it hasn't made any sort of really meaningful spike in the refugee numbers in Canada, I don't think, right? Having them come here on valid temporary residence and then holding out the potential for a path to permanent residency that isn't through the refugee system. Um, but yeah, does it the, kind of fulfill it, like the same object? Like, so what if you, you know, it kind of fulfills the same objective of helping people in war. I mean, I pulled up like there's 171,000 people who've arrived in the last year under the program. Another 831,000, well, sorry, 831,000 approved. So another 600,000 who haven't traveled yet for whatever reason. Are those, like when we talk about humanitarian objectives, same with the Hong, I don't know what the numbers are for the Hong Kong work permit program. Um, but do you view those, or do you view those as distinct from refugees, some sort of a quasi, like, a sort of, but not really refugees? Like, how do you view those programs? And should those programs be the, you know, the way? It's like, a really interesting question, Steve. Yeah, I mean, yeah, people have, like, I talked about that... how, you know, for, uh, you can view it as either the, for politics or for a paler-skinned reason, it was, it wasn't necessary to go through the formal refugee process. Yeah. But there is a, you know, a mixed, well, a humanitarian component, a political component but there is a there's a similar objective at least to the refugee system i mean i think the benefit of that program was how agile it was how quick it was that doing an overseas refugee determination with full admissibility full like all of that takes a lot of time and a lot of resources and when there was something as dramatic as the invasion that getting people out safely really quickly um, was a priority. I think it it worked well in that regard, getting a large number of people out uh, to safety. And I do think that there can be more than one option when the Canadian government looks at its humanitarian role in the world, right? It doesn't just have to be resettling refugees. It can be providing temporary safe haven uh, for people like Ukrainians who whether it's true or not, there is some sense that they are wanting to go back uh, after the conflict in a way that people from other conflict zones might be less willing to. I don't know that that's made out on the statistics at all, <laughs> but that's at least the messaging on it. Um, yeah, I do think that that was really interesting that the Canadian government showed what ha is possible when there is political will. And I mean, it has been pointed out by dozens and dozens of people who are smarter and more plugged in than I am on these issues, the devastating discrepancy between the numbers of Syrians, Afghans, Yemenis, Iranians, uh, you know, the list goes on, Eritreans, yeah. queer Ugandans. I mean, the list goes on and on about how that Canada did not respond in a similar way to mm -hmm. conflicts in other areas of the world. Yeah, with different 
skin color, different cultural backgrounds. So mm-hmm. I, I do think that when we think about our humanitarian goals, there can be more than one tool in the toolbox. Um, but the clo- I mean, the closing of the border to refugee claimants coming up from the U.S. is, I think, going to have a really massive impact on the number of refugee claims in Canada. And I don't think that we've seen anything from the federal government about how other humanitarian commitments might be ramped up in light of that. Mm -hmm. The reason that I answered so suddenly was that at least at the beginning of the CUAET program, if a Ukrainian had arrived in Canada and had made a refugee claim, would they have been assured of a successful outcome on that claim? At that point, I don't, I mean, unless there was a very specific component to why they were being targeted, I don't think that they would have been. Whereas you know, somebody who was arriving from Syria or from Afghanistan or an LGBTQ person from Uganda could be relatively assured of a positive outcome on their claim. So it was unique in that sense that they, you know, um, it wasn't that they were given those permits because they were going to be seen as being de facto refugee claimants. They were seen as needing to escape a conflict zone. Um, but again, it it was... Um, you know, it was unusual in that sense, because I think if you had decided to make a claim at that moment, there wasn't that sense that, yes, for sure, your claim is going to be successful. So I don't think the Canadian government saw that as being something that was going to bring about a floodgate of successful claims. And so, you know, I think in some way, they felt that there was some assurance of that. And you know, the fact that it didn't actually transpire, that there was this floodgate of claims, I think, um, you know, was something. But I, I agree entirely with what you're saying, Laura, that um, there are a different, there are different types of, of, of remedies that could be brought. But the fact that this brought such an immediate humanitarian response, and now the way that the government is, is, um, is gesticulating that they're saying we don't want to bring a permanent residence program because we're responsive to Zelensky saying please don't gut our don't create a brain drain on the country because we want people to be able to return. You know, again, it, it's talking about um, a more uh, reciprocated kind of relationship. You know, inter intergovernmental, but um, you know, again, there's just it's more of a there's more of a diplomatic relationship that exists there that we don't see with the other countries that we're speaking about. Yeah. And so I mean, not... answer to your question, Steve, I think is like the difference between what a lay person considers a refugee and what Canadian law considers mm. to be a refugee. So I always hear people say like, Oh, we should pick up refugees from the camps or like all oh, these Ukrainian refugees. Uh, But a refugee in Canadian immigration law is really narrowly defined Hmm. as someone who's going to face persecution on the basis of race, religion, political opinion, uh, nationality, or being in a particular social group, or someone who's going to face a risk of personalized torture or cruel and unusual treatment or punishment. So being displaced by conflict, being displaced by war, like a lot of the Ukrainians, or being in a refugee camp because of ongoing conflict in your home country, a lot of those individuals don't meet the definition of refugee at Canadian immigration law, but are sort of referred to more broadly by the media or lay people as refugees. 
So I agree, Deanna, when a lot of the Ukrainians were coming and we were getting questions about, can I make a successful refugee claim? In a lot of cases, the answer is no, because you don't have a personalized risk and you're not at risk of persecution on one of the protected grounds. Mm -hmm. So compared to, you know, women from Afghanistan who have a really Mm -hmm. strong gender based claim or, uh, you know, political opponents to the regime in Syria who have a really good claim on political opinion. So, yeah, I think some of the difficulty in in talking in the media with people about how Canada chooses or welcomes refugees is that a lot of people think when we mean refugee, we mean displaced by conflict, and it's actually more narrow. I mean, when the Ukraine, like when the CUAET announced you know, it did, I think that was like within a week or two of the conflict started and it looked like Russia may steamroll Ukraine. So mm-hmm. the war has also certainly evolved uh, in a different way than it looked during those first few weeks. The Hong Kong program also is like the, the, the general idea of the Hong Kong program seems to be that people in Hong Kong are at risk in Hong Kong and that uh, it stems from the umbrella protests. So it's, it's, it's another where there's the weird, and I wonder like in terms of humanitarian commitments, if these programs will start to replace traditional refugee resettlement subject to the with the exception being this Western hemisphere commitment of 15,000. I'm not sure if that's 15,000 per year or 15,000 one-off. I mean, I think what we're seeing in the refugee streams is what we're seeing in immigration law more generally, which is like a, I call it like a bespoke approach to, (laughs) to immigration law, right? Instead of having these broad programs where you qualify broadly, it's like highly specific narrow focus you know we just want french speaking people in express entry not everyone express entry oh we want we just want like just ukrainians fleeing conflict not everyone fleeing conflict it's a far more fractured approach Hmm. to choosing migrants than that seems to be the direction that there's these small programs that are highly specific rather than blanket policies that are applying yeah. Yeah, I, that's that's a very good way of putting it, Laura. I feel like it's um it's less of that demand-driven kind of approach mm-hmm. to refugee selection and more mm-hmm. of like 15,000 there and 10,000 there and uh I have to say part of what I find um leads to my distaste is this kind of self-congratulatory mm-hmm. um, media driven like for yay you know Canada's going out there and getting this many uh, you know and um, leading to this feeling that Canada and individuals can do what they can to support not really and so people are calling all the time and saying we want to sponsor a refugee and really having very little sense of the kind of the way that this comes together as a big picture international like global issue uh you know what it means to be kind of curating our collection of refugees that that we're bringing in from abroad well i think next year are the wagers isn't it ten thousand wagers over a two-year period starting in 2024 yeah again that just highly specific 
you know, and Canada does hold a lot of the cards in these regards, but it does feel really uncomfortable for the federal government to be picking and choosing which countries or which the cultural backgrounds are meritorious rather than a fair assessment of someone who's who is self-identified and applying. Mm. It's it's funny you mentioned that, Deanna, because when I became a refugee lawyer, uh, almost, you know, all my friends are my concern with becoming a refugee lawyer and, and you know, my own mental health was it's going to be really hard to hear stories of trauma and displacements and difficulties and, you know, continue to represent people and hear these stories. And without a doubt, what is most destructive is dealing with the Canadian system. The gap between people's expectations of how fairly and calmly and uh, kindly they will be treated and the gulf between that and then what actually happens when they arrive in Canada, like be it a lack of housing, immigration, use of immigration detention, a lack of procedural fairness in some of these uh uh, these proceedings or just the attitude of CBSA officers being so unnecessarily aggressive that what I have found the most hard about being a refugee lawyer is not hearing people's stories of trauma and ultimate resilience, but trying to navigate that gap between what Canada puts out as its reputation and then what it's actually like for traumatized migrants to go through the system. And it is not the same as what Canada advertises. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, for sure. And I mean, one other um, side note is just hearing Canadians talk about, well, I mean, we're letting in so many refugees, mm. like that comment always takes a little bit of my soul. Um, the idea that, uh, <laughs> that, w that we give such a, we just give it away for the refugee climates that come to Canada, I find a little bit heartbreaking every time. I loved that statistic from like 10 years ago where it was that refugees paid more in income tax than people who came as federal investors. Mm. <laughs> that was Kenny's favorite like, statistic. I love that statistic because it just, it totally turned on our head Canada, that Canada is doing this as, you know, necessarily a do good measure and not that, Canada is benefiting from the the intelligence and resilience and strength and culture of thousands of people from around the world who have moved to Canada to find a better life and are so deeply committed to making a better life for their families that okay. yeah the the idea that Canada is somehow the gracious one yeah. and not the recipient of so many benefits is yeah. also yeah. yeah, I find that hard. If you yeah. had to guess on where it's going, the public discourse the next few years over housing and immigration, if you had to put on your crystal ball, uh, you know, there's. it's often said in Canada that there's a, a political consensus on maintaining or increasing immigration. We can put the People's Party of Canada to the side, or maybe they are an exception on that. Do you see that consensus holding? Um, is this a temporary shift in the narrative, in the media discourse? Or 
has housing led things to a uh, a breaking point i was in our last podcast i was saying that i thought that sean fraser um you know that he could be prime minister if he was able to solve housing which is a difficult difficult task but that uh he was starting to be associated with you know this uh a, a huge increase in I mean, it's framed as immigration, but I think, Laura, you're right that it's actually temporary residents. The permanent residents always gets the media statistics, but it's also temporary residents. And that um, housing will dictate both his political future. I think it will dictate whether we continue to maintain or increase immigration levels. I think it's reaching a breaking point. I don't know if you agree or if it's just a blip in media stories. I mean, I think the housing issue in Canadian cities is so, so bad right now that young people are feeling so shut out of the market, are feeling so discouraged on being able to buy or even rent the smallest mm -hmm. of places that I, I don't, I can't see how it wouldn't have an effect on the discourse, um, on refugees, on immigrants, on temporary residents. I think that living in Canadian cities right now with the housing crisis, especially when you see that it's so Canadian that you see you don't see the same trends in you know America or other cities to the same extent. Yeah. Um, I think it is. I think it is going to have to have an impact because it's it's so difficult for young people or even middle aged people. I guess that's where I am now. If I'm being honest, <laughs> I don't think I can just a young person anymore. I've been told people. I don't qualify either for the young lawyers uh, events at CBA. So I've entered middle age. Yeah, I don't see how it can't have an impact. People are so upset and frustrated about housing in Canada. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't see that this will impact on the highest level of the labor market, the you know, the, 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 the wealthiest uh, sort of, uh, what am I thinking, echelon, you know, I think that they will continue to enter because I think, uh, I, I don't feel that it's, I don't have the impression that those are the people that are being impacted to the same extent. I feel like it will be more the students, the new entrance to the labor market, um, the refugee claimants. I think that it might, I think that humanitarian, uh, humanitarian sentiments tend to go out the window when people are feeling pressed. And so that's where my concern would be that, uh, we'll continue to, to cater toward, uh, the, the sort of more human capital kind of model because that is the way that we tend to go when things get tight. And so that would be my fear. And I, you know, I do think that we, we tend to trend to more conservative policies when, uh, you know, when it's an economic downturn, when there's housing issues, that sort of thing. So that would be my fear. Um, I don't know if that's my, my prediction. I, I, I guess it probably is. Um, yeah. And I don't know. I mean, Mark Miller in the news, the new immigration minister said, he put it kind of crudely, which was like, well, do we take in less high skilled people? Do we take in less migrants? I don't even know where, you know, where you actually could cut. Because um, if it's on the temporary side, are you saying 
to schools that uh, they'll have to increase domestic tuition? Are you telling businesses that they'll have to recruit, even though the unemployment rate is really low, they'll have to, you know, figure out recruitment on that end? Is it less Australians who come to Whistler under the working holiday program? Is it less skilled labor? You're obviously not going to tell people that they can't bring their spouses or children in. Um, so actually mm -hmm. figuring out, it's like how every politician, when they talk about, we're going to come in and cut the budget. And then they get elected mayor and they're like, well, is it going to be libraries or pools? What aren't we having anymore? Mm -hmm. um, I don't know where they'll actually cut. If yeah. that is the direction they go. And and I do think it is worth noting that the percentage of new temporary residents to make refugee claims or the percentage of permanent residents who come in through the refugee or humanitarian programs is still relatively low, right? Mm -hmm. Like the numbers overall are far, like the number of international students far, far, far exceeds the number of refugee claims in Canada oh, a year, that, yeah. for example. So I do think it is, I do worry, like you do, Deanna, that the most vulnerable and most needy take the brunt of some of these policies when they're not, not the biggest demographic and they're the ones who are least able to to handle, like to, to weather such a storm. So, but yeah, to your point, Steve, I think that the sort of conflict between housing and immigration and temporary residence I think that that is an issue that I'm seeing more in the news when they're talking about the housing crisis um, than even a couple of years ago. So, I mean, obviously my recommendation is to fix the housing crisis. <laughs> <laughs> Not <that. laughs> I mean, I can go deep into my opinions on single family zoning if you would really like. <laughs> I, for one, appreciate going to an Airbnb that's in the middle of a, uh, city that is experiencing a housing crisis <laughs> so i mean there's so so much more we could be doing on the housing front that it seems that when we're looking at policy solutions to it that has to be the answer and not like you said cutting back on some of these programs that are benefiting the economy or benefiting families benefiting canada's humanitarian goals like the it has to be the other way around where we're looking at the problems to housing mm -hmm. first. Agreed. Oh, there's, and I do think, uh, you know, the prime minister was in the news a bit uh, and now it'll be an attack opposite opposition attack ads for the next two years saying housing is not a federal uh, priority or responsibility. But um I, I do think, I mean, I, I do think there should be some coordination. I, that podcast really did make me think, like, does it make sense that in November they announce uh, the immigration targets for the next year and the provinces in theory all scramble to build the housing, which doesn't happen, but like that that's the way that the system is initially designed even seems very odd. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, the federal government getting out of the housing game I think coincides, <laughs> you know, with some of the problems in the Canadian housing market, right? And this is not my specialty at all, but from a very lay person, minimally informed, it's like, seems like there's some coincidence in the timing here, guys. Um, <laughs> hmm. A little bit, a little but bit. I, 
Yeah, so I, but I do think, yeah, the idea that the federal government doesn't have responsibility for housing and then downloads it to the province and then the province downloads it to the cities, um, that cannot, I mean, for, for me, seeing it just as a random outsider who sees like flows of newcomers, uh, economic trends, like there's all these matters that are directly related to the federal government that have an mm -hmm. impact on housing. For them to wash their hands of it seems like a, reneging of a really serious responsibility yeah the federal government controls demand and the provinces control supply it's a bit of mm. a weird mm -hmm. it's a bit weird to have those like to be separate and not coordinating because in theory they're supposed to meet but yeah mm. at least coordinated yeah yeah at least coordinated but i know this is totally circling back to something that we didn't really talk about but the safe third country <laughs> The safe third country. Uh, they the title upheld, of the episode. Yes, mm. they upheld the agreement, <laughs> but did send it back on the Section 15 claim, right? So they they found that it didn't violate Section 7 of the Charter, uh, but the the federal court judge didn't rule on Section 15, like the treatment of gender based claims in the United States. So I'm not an optimistic person by nature, but there is a tiny sliver, perhaps, of hope. So if um, Trump is president, then by the time the Supreme Court hears it next or the trial happens again, where they reassess the facts, if Trump is president, possibly from a jail cell, do they go on the conditions of asylum claimants in the U.S. then or do, is it back during his first term? How does that even work? Yeah, it's a good question <laughs> if it gets it. I mean, usually when you send it, you know, a review back, you can put it. And new evidence so i'm assuming that they can file new evidence on gender-based claims when it is going back uh now but i mean i found that yeah the the decision that you know things in the united states are generally fair uh was i think for people who are plugged into what's happening with the u.s asylum system in the past couple of years is pretty yeah surprising conclusion <laughs> They also took that step that you often see when it comes to charter rights and deportation, which is like, well, even if there's a problem here, there's always a TRP or H&C. And mm -hmm. it's every step of the way you can say like, well, in this specific facet, what about those other nine options? You could even have 10 judgments where each one individually has said, yeah, this is problematic, but those other ones might work, um, which was signed of how they sidestepped the issue on cruel and unusual punishment was, well, it's always a TRP. Yeah, which seems, I mean, it, it's there, the, in my opinion, the trend on charter litigation and immigration law is just to sort of point to these illusory, which is what <laughs> Justice McDonald called it, which in my opinion is, is super accurate, these illusory safety valves and say it's charter compliant because technically there exists a process at law that could remedy it without looking at does the available process actually work mm -hmm. yeah what's well, the same yeah, with exactly. uh, how broad inadmissibility is because technically there's ministerial relief huh. yeah exactly or <laughs> why the pro why the pro bar is constitutional because technically you can ask for a deferral uh, of removal to get over the 12-month mark so it seems that that keeps being the solution in immigration law that there's these 
safety valves without a real assessment of how available in reality the safety valves because it's are. not quality it's not a qualitative assessment of mm-hmm. uh of the safety valve yeah usually because yeah. there's no like evidence on it and then the, the dispute then is the, over before that and then the, the the solution they said of well then your your issue is with the administrative action on how the safety valves are administered and that becomes really extremely onerous as a charter challenge to think about how to put together a challenge to CBSA's lack of assessment of temporary resident permits for ineligible mm-hmm. refugee claimants at the border. <laughs> yeah. Like the logistics of that make my brain melt a little bit. Well, this sort of goes back to the conversation that we had with uh, Professor Rehag about trying to use statistics like to try and use artificial intelligence to try and pull the statistics to um, see what the outcomes have been in this type of but again these are not even litigate I mean you can maybe see a small subset of those decisions that were litigated but the first instant fraud decisions will never have been reported so um, it's almost something um, yeah. where we won't have access to those decisions. So, um, so, so trying to mount uh, evidence to show that these remedies are illusory feels like we're just we're arguing with our hands tied. Yeah, I mean, especially in the case of the safe third country where people come up, are found ineligible, and then go back into the U.S. detention system. Right. The what they need is one make... of those surveys. You know, IRCC sends out these surveys. They should mm-hmm. just send out surveys saying, hey, you know, you were sent back to the United States five years ago. Can you tell us how you're doing? Mm. What was your experience <laughs> with detention at the border? Yeah. Yeah. And how are you doing now back home? Mm. Yeah. So I I find the the how the federal court and Supreme Court of Canada judges think evidence can be gathered in mm-hmm. immigration and refugee context. It, it seems there's a bit of a lack of understanding about how things work on the ground and how difficult it is to get evidence mm. of how things work on the ground. Yeah, I can imagine litigating those cases. The, the nature very... of refugee claimants and, and these laws yeah can imagine making these submissions it would be very hard not to testify when making submissions because (laughs) uh yeah um because just i i do sometimes feel like they're they're i felt this more lately than at any other time in my career where it feels like you know i felt this as well when we were we've been speaking to pente jafari and in in previous conversations where there it does feel like an access to justice issue in the sense that the bar is really struggling to figure out how to put evidence before the court to describe what the access to justice issues are because uh, because just explaining what the experience is of litigants without having the data or the information of the experience that our clients face 
you know, the, that sort of claim that we always see about, well, this is anecdotal evidence, we don't, you know, but how do we produce that in comparison to the data that's available at the fingertips of the department? Um, I feel like it's really highlighted in the types of litigation, including the safe third country um, litigation that you're talking about. How do you demonstrate what what the experience is um, of of what those alternative remedies might be? Oh, everything's redacted. I, the access to information acts are like the requests just feel like they're getting more and more redacted. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, again, I mean, the the idea that a temporary resident permit is a solution to the safe third country. I mean, I, I don't know how to communicate it to these judges in a way that makes sense. Like, field trip to the port of entry. <laughs> Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 